Yeah, I think any anytime you have someone that is a Sagittarius playing dominant power person, which really all of us are, if you really tested it, usually there's a few freaks out there. But if you do any type of multi-directional patterning that is fast or, or not, I think you, you, if you superset that with something that you're actually monitoring and testing in sagittal plane, it should go up because just because you're going to have better blood flow into that joint, you're going to have activation from tissues and neurological processes that probably weren't there if you just worked in the sagittal plane. So just from a sheer recruitment standpoint and physiology standpoint, you should test better immediately. You know, I had a great coach one time tell me that they get better 40 times if they test agility first. And this is at the college level. That was Coach Bobby Stroop, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Before we get to the show today, I wanted to mention a really cool item that is available now from our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com, in their store. That item is Exogen Premium Wearable Resistance. Exogen is a series of tight-fitting sleeves along with uniquely shaped fusiform weights that strap directly onto those sleeves. So what I mean is you can have shin sleeves, arm sleeves, shorts, and a vest, and you can strap these uniquely fusiform-shaped weights, they're light in nature, 100, 200 grams, that strap on in a way that allows you not only to resist movement very specifically, but also add fine-tuned elements of rotation to that resistance. So this is the next level of wearable resistance. You may have heard this from back long ago on the show, Hank Kreienhoff talking about it, to recently Chris Corfis, sprint coach, talking about it. This is the next level in premium wearable resistance. I've used it myself. I love it. I love not only the way it feels and the way you feel uh, form and technique change. It's like combining technique with power. And so often we just think about weighted vests as just pure force, pure downward gravity loaded resistance. This is the ultimate combination of technique with power, and it shows up in things like Chris Corfis being able to take time off an athlete's 10-meter fly by putting the sleeves just on one side of the body, an ipsilateral resistance. We're using the body's own systems, fine-tuning it, and that's what this does. It allows you as the coach or an athlete to create, explore, and fine-tune the way that the resistance is rotationally impacting the body. This is next level stuff, and I know you'll love it. So you can check that out in the Simply Faster store. Head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com, and get your exogen gear today. As long as I've been a coach, I'm just always on the lookout for new creative training methods in the field. And I, I don't say that I'm, I, I think to say you're always chasing creative training methods, you could take that to be, oh, I never really settled on the rocks and the foundations of, of power and force and just being physically proficient. But uh, more so, I, I just feel like sport and the human body is so complex. And we're just really starting, getting started in understanding this thing that we're walking around in, uh, let alone complex sports situations. So I'm always just am floored every time I see a coach who's putting all the pieces of athleticism together in a new way that makes really good sense for achieving higher transfer to the complexity of sport. So a recent presentation that I saw was one by Bobby Stroop at the recent Track and Football Consortium, which I also uh, did a presentation for. And Bobby's presentation just absolutely blew me away. I had never seen such a, yes, creative, but, but every piece in that training regimen that he showed when he was giving an example of how he trained Patrick Mahomes, who is the quarterback for the Super Bowl champion, Kansas City Chiefs, every piece was so relevant and had so much intention behind it. 
And you could see exactly how it fit in the grand scheme of things without trying to be, uh, I think a lot of the quote unquote sports specific stuff that you see out there for Instagram is it almost looks more like a dance or it's contrived or mechanical. Uh, This was anything but that. I'd never seen so many pieces of the athletic puzzle being put together in a way that really made sense for the needs of a team sport athlete. And so I'm really excited to have Bobby on the show. Bobby is the founder and president of Athlete Performance Enhancement Center, or APEC, and he has directed human performance systems for nearly 20 years. Bobby's coaching ranges from youth athletes to some of the top names in multiple professional sports, so football, baseball, and beyond. Bobby is definitely well known for his work with Patrick Mahomes, but he has worked with many other high-level athletes as well. So with that said, Bobby is going to get into a lot. This is a really heavy show. It's one that I wish I had more. This is an audio show. It's one that I certainly wish there was a little bit more video to go with it directly as you're listening, but still tons of stuff to get out of it. I do have one of his exercises in the show notes on the page on Just Fly Sports. But on the podcast, Bobby is going to get into a variety of his um, more unorthodox training methods, including his locomotion complexes, triplanar plyometrics, multilateral strength training, uh, how he complexes these things, how he looks at training in light of uh, long-term development. His APEC trains uh, youth all the way up to pros, and they make tons of inroads in between these age groups and what athletes need to be doing and the foundations and how the foundations work their way up rather than building things from the top down. And just really an insightful and holistic show that makes us all better. Even if you're um, a track coach or just interested in speed, as you listen to in the teaser, there's things in this show that are going to be great for you. And obviously, if you work with team sport athletes in any capacity, you're the strength coach, the sport coach, this is a show that really pushes the envelope forward. And as Bobby says, it helps rise all tides. So really excited to bring you guys this show. Let's get on to it. Episode 236 with Coach Bobby Stroop. Bobby, man, it's always cool to talk to another coach who has, I know your kids are a little older than mine, but fairly young kids. And so what have you been learning through training or just human development through the process of being a father and having children? Well, I think, first of all, having having two girls, it really, really opens your eyes to, you know, how sensitive communication is and really just understanding uh, the differences, even with the people with the same you know, genetics and the, the core, just how different they can be and how they respond differently to your body language or the way you communicate and then their physical development. So, you know, our, our company and, and my background has always been kind of seeing youth develop from the bottom up. And so through that lens, just kind of seeing it firsthand and letting them be little guinea pigs on certain, certain ideas that I had, you know, I can't sue myself, Joel. So <laughs> it's, good, it's a good way to safely test some theories and, I have no, I have no intention of my girls being phenomenal athletes. I, I want them to, I want them to love their body, and if, if, and I want them to to love movement, and I want them to have a healthy relationship with me as their father. And so, you know, in the event they want to be better at something, I feel like I can help them if it's a good situation. But you know, I've tried to delay, you know, and push off coaching them. You know, I, I don't want to coach their teams. I don't want to do any of that. But you know, little things like trying to maximize the phase in which they were crawling and understanding the the development of the spine and the hips and the shoulder relationship with that and not rushing walking. It was cool to, to try to be a little more persistent as a father on those things, just because some of the things that you, that you read and you understand and research and see, but aside from that, being a dad has made me a better person. And I think ultimately if you become a better person, you should be a better coach because a coach is so many different things you can say, okay, a coach is, 
in our field is, is programming. It's, you know, it's, it's metrics, it's this, that, and the other, but really there's such a, a component of communication and the skill of coaching and understanding how to, to, to get people to act in their best interest. And I think if you're a dad, there's no better training space for that. Yeah. I, I really like what you said about the communication too. And my kids are two and four, but it's the point my daughter's four and it's just interesting watching her. I just like observing my kids, watching them move and, and run and gallop. And I'm sure we'll talk about that in the locomotion complex and like just kind of seeing how kids they're organically learning. Something is in them to naturally learn all these skills, given the enough you know bandwidth of, of opportunities that they're going to figure it out themselves in many cases. Although my kids are also a little bit night and day, like with my son and my daughter and the things that they just naturally want to do versus and that that's like you said, like not trying to have like huge expectations for them. I'm always trying to not like was my we have a bouncy little bouncy castle in one of the rooms in our house. And my daughter had this thing where she wanted to like run and jump into the door as fast as she could. And she's seen me with a watch and stuff. And like so I'm like timing her because she wants to see the number. But I'm like, oh, this could be bad real quick if I, you know, my coaching gears and this expectation. I'm like, is this wrong? Should I not? She liked it. She kept coming back. And then we put like little pillows up for her to jump a hurdle over and jump in. And she loved it. But I'm always trying to make sure double check myself to make sure I'm just focusing on what they want to do and not what I want to do. And just to watch them and just see see how they solve things and, and explore their space. Yeah, I think it's just an awesome thing to do and reflect and gosh, what a gift to be a dad, right? Like, it's amazing. And you, But you hear people like Joe Ken and some others in our profession that will say, you know, be very careful, you know, mm-hmm. proceed with caution when, when working with your kids. And I, you know, I take those things pretty seriously. So my priority is to be a dad first and make sure my girls love themselves yeah. and spiritually and physically and emotionally that I'm fostering their development. But it's really cool to to be in this profession and to, to hopefully be able to offer them things if they want it. And um, I just think that there's no profession, no aspect of your life that you can't get better at. If, if you really try to be a better dad, it's, it's just the best. Yeah. Being, being a father has been a huge gift. I, I agree. And I also, I, I don't know if this was an official question, but actually it would lead me to, I know you guys at APEC do you know the full range of age, age ranges. And you mentioned building bottom up from the youth up. And so just what are some things that from that young age or how young of athletes do you work with? I'll ask. And then what are some of those foundations that you'll see or want to see going into the older, the older ages? Well, I want to be careful. I don't want people to just turn this podcast off when I answer this question, but (laughs) we, uh, we, we start working with kids at the kindergarten level and you say, well, what age is that? Well, I like the concept of maturity. Um, and not necessarily bio banding, but I like the concept of maturity over age. So the reason we say kindergarten is because usually when the kids are ready to go to kindergarten, they're ready for some type of, of group instruction. So we have programs for long-term athletic development, level one through four. And that curriculum starts in kindergarten and we kind of have some groups earmarked. So kindergarten through second grade, third through fifth, and then middle school. Middle school can be divided into level three and four. And I know it sounds, you know, it's not like a karate belt testing system, but we do have a curriculum. Now we don't communicate this to the kids as far as here's how you advance, but there are situations where it's just not appropriate for certain kids and their where they're at in their development, whether they're in second grade or not to be with other kids. So we do have some things where we, Hey, we would love to 
on a Saturday, let's run your kid through some things. I want to see if we need to test them up. Now we don't solicit this. We don't, we don't sell it. But when we come across a situation in a group where we are obviously recognizing people are ready for advancement from a neurological and a tissue standpoint, we want to get them out of that group. So to answer your question, uh, incoming kindergarten is when we will take kids. And if you were to interview the kids, what we want is for them to say, APEC is so fun. We went up there and played for an hour and I wish I could come every day. Okay. With the kindergarten through second grade group, we only let them come once a week. I, and, and what we tell the kids and parents is, I hope you loved it. I hope you have fun. We kind of have a 12 week loop of curriculum that we go through. That's pretty undulating that we believe in for them. And we tell the parents and kids, Hey, try to remember everything you did at APEC today and do it one more time with your mom or dad this week. So then they have to learn how to recite. We want them to teach their parents, which is so I've had yeah. some great videos and funny things. And we're just hearing that, like, if you really ever want to learn about yourself, have a kid imitate you. It's pretty funny. <laughs> so seeing some of that has really been so fun for us. And that probably is the longest answer you could ever get to a simple question, but, but there it is. I, I like that, though. And it is it is right off the bat, it sounds you hear, oh, starting in kindergarten. But then you think, well, a couple of things. One is, well, I mean, kindergarten's old enough for recess and phys- and fun stuff and physical education. And that is being, you know, our kids are being devoid of that stuff gradually. So it's got to get picked up somewhere, right? And so just that being a big thing. And then two, I think about uh, Dr. Tommy John, who's been on this show, has said this is ultimately it, it, got, it has to come back to the parents, like you can do in a good way. I mean, you know, and so you think about what, like, I think about what you're saying, like, go show your mom and dad this, like, hey, let's kind of make this a little bit more of a family thing. That seems like a, a double win for me. And then just with fun being the basis and getting the parents involved and then only holding it to once a week. That seems, I mean, you know, for the people who were about to turn the show off, you know, it seems like a good combination of things. Yeah, I think it, I mean, I think it's working. We're always auditing our systems for that because we've got to be careful. And we do get a lot of negativity about it from parents. So like my kids way more advanced than this and they need to be pushed. And, you know, my feedback is maybe this isn't a good fit for you. You know, I, I'm not here to, to create some, you know, ruffian or street fighter. Like I'm, I want neurological development. I'm going to follow the things that we believe in that we've seen work. And, you know, we, we're, we have followed the, the kind of path of we're not going to let people tell us what we're professionals and doing we're going to make the decision and we're going to do what's right. And instead of taking easy money, we want to show proof through our results and our relationships. And that's kind of, that's kind of what we've done with that. It's not for everybody. The reason we created this program is not to cash in or this vision that we had. It was parents would come to us complaining about programs for young kids. And I, the culture of our company is if you come to a meeting with a complaint, you need to have a solution. And so when a, when a coach comes to me and is like, well, this kid's doing, I mean, let's just call it X fit kids. And they're doing, you know, 30 snatches and they're five, <laughs> and you know, whatever. Then, then I tell my coaches, like, you don't get to come to a meeting and complain about something unless you, you want to offer something. So that's the genesis of this was providing an option for people that wanted something rather than just complaining about the options that are out there. And that's really the, the origin for most things that we do. Yeah, that makes sense. So what um what are some of the things that you guys obviously the whole like parent vicarious or my my kid needs to get strong or whatever and, and that just being sh- shuttled in way too early. What are some of the solutions that you guys have for that younger group that's just, you know, coming in not so often and and trying to create a, a healthier alternative? 
Well, I think first of all, it's got to be something we believe in, regardless. So we, we don't let our clients tell us what to believe in or what to do. You know, if, if someone comes up to us and is like, this is what I want you to do with my kid. We generally tell them it's probably not a good fit. Those situations psychologically usually don't work out. So while we'll try to help the client and, and influence the parent's thought process, I, I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not going to bring somebody in here and take their money. That's going to affect what we're doing. So, you know, for us, the, the, the kindergarten through second grade program is really, we used to call it lead off and it's, it's organized games and Hey, can you do this? Can you move like this animal? Can you, you know, mm-hmm. how many people can do this? Oh, that was fun. Who's, who's, who's good at this. Now, how many of you learn that your body can move this way? Things like that. Yeah. When you get into third through fifth grade, it's a little more structured curriculum. It's just like school. So we're going to hit a certain amount of movements in two sessions in a week. Okay. When you move to middle school, now we start doing some resistance training outside of just body weight. So it could be sandbags, med balls, could be dumbbells. If they advance to level four, they're going to get out the barbell. Barbell is not evil. Strength training is not evil. They need to learn how to handle those things. But in my opinion, there are proper progressions and healthy relationships with the approach to training that need to be put as a priority. Now, I know that I'm not, that I know this isn't always a popular opinion and I'm fine with people disagreeing. This is just the way that we do it. That's interesting. Something you said, uh, the level systems, because I think, you know, a kid, an average kid probably goes through their scholastic, you know, the, their school and they, maybe they're in middle school and it's like, okay, you're, you know, you're 14, let's start teaching you lifts with a barbell. But who says you have the right to, to start using that or the readiness? And so can you take me through um, those, you, you said level one, two, three, four, how many levels do you have and what are some of those, do those entail? It's four basic levels. And I think it, it sounds a lot more complicated than it probably is. I mean, you, if you were just to Lay it out generic, generically, level one is kindergarten through second grade. Level two would be third through fifth grade. Level three and level four is where it gets dicey in middle school. And it takes a good coach's eye to identify, you know, what a kid that is in sixth grade needs to do different from another kid that's got a mustache that's in sixth grade. <laughs> you know, and quite honestly, what we found is if a girl's going into seventh grade, she, she might need to be on a more of a ninth grade level program. And I don't think psychologically it's great for these seventh grade girls to be beating the tar out of these boys that that are already, you know, feeling a certain way in a lot of the training sessions. And typically middle school with what we do, the girls are fairly dominant in seven, by the time they're in seventh grade in, in almost every way, aside from aggression. So we try to, to look at developing the athlete as, as not just physically, but in this level system, the main thing we want to do is educate the individual on what makes them unique what are their gifts? That's the way that we want to go with this. So think of it as an exploration process where we want people to identify markers of, Hey, these are the things that make me special and unique and different while at the same time adhering to, to human development and principles of human performance. So I know that sounds like a something wildly complicated, but it's not, it's just keeping our priorities through that process. Yeah, I like how you're taking a real holistic look at that just through yeah, the, the multiple different layers of development. Because, yeah, like you said, middle school, there's all sorts of there's just that's like the pinnacle, the gamut of different levels and readiness. So I I think that's uh, that's probably some, something that would work its way to hopefully all levels of coaching, because at that time period, it just seems like, yeah, like you said, like that's that's where things really can get mixed up. It, I mean, I, there cannot be a harder group of kids to coach, you know, than than 
you know, 40 middle school kids that are just randomly thrown together. I mean, because that I'm not saying that's what we have. We have different situations because we work in smaller groups, but then when you have a bunch of middle school kids, the variance there, you would never find another level of variance that's greater than that in any sport, in any situation. That's got to be the hardest thing to, to do in managing that appropriately. It's very difficult. And there's been some people that have had some great ideas, but ultimately you have to have good coaches that make great decisions and training sessions with that group. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Yeah. Bobby, with your long-term system too, I mean, I know you've been in this game for a while and a lot of your athletes who are high level now pros have been with you for quite some time. I mean, that's, you've been able to follow athletes and refine your system for quite a while now with that. Do you have any comments on kind of how that's gone, being able to follow people for so long and refine things? You know, I think ultimately too often we're focused on top-down viewpoints. Like for instance, it's obviously very incredibly valuable for someone to give us data on an Olympic sprinter on a force plate treadmill and, you know, maybe maybe some NFL quarterback or, or some lacrosse player or someone that's at the very peak of their sport and then us figuring out what we need to do with everyone else because of that data, right? We kind of look at it the opposite way is I want to identify things that aren't true in the developmental process, not things that are true, things that aren't true. Like for instance, Oh, well, if a kid's flat footed when he's in fifth grade, you know, we got a problem and all these things. We found that that's not true because the development of the foot, it might be necessary to go through those phases for the, for the athletes to learn how to one accurately learn where their foot is in space Two, if you've ever seen a calcaneus, it's not a round ball. So that's just as an example, but physical development, from the top down can be a dangerous viewpoint. In my opinion, people at the top, you can learn lessons from them. There's no doubt. I do not think the lessons you take from the people at the very top is human development. So we love to look at things from the bottom up because we've seen dozens of kids make it to the professional level in over six different sports. And here's, I can't tell you how they did it, but I can tell you how they did not do it. And when people come to me with, well, you have to do this in order to do this. Those are the things we want to disprove in the developmental process because I don't want anyone to ever feel like they're missing a mark and a checkpoint along the way. Those things are mainly fallacies and they're made up from this top-down approach. Yeah, that's so with that top-down approach and I really like how you said that because I think it it's very easy, as you said, like just to say, oh, this elite, you know, pitcher, th- well, the pit, there's a lot of different ways to throw a pitch, but, you know, or this elite yeah. sprinter sprints like this. So let's get all these little kids doing this stuff. And and so maybe that let a good entry point to, I had this question all the way at the end, but I want to ask it now is you have a locomotion complex. You had your TFC presentation, you're talking about all the, the different combinations of human locomotion and how you coach them and it did seem you look at that it seems quite different than okay well let's just run over wickets or something you know like so how does do you go about teaching the art of speed and locomotion from a bottom-up approach so first off the locomotion concept has been around a long time right and gary gray and todd wright those guys are friends of mine and todd was a strength coach at texas now i mean he's been in the nba for a while now he's an executive and then logan schwartz they did some cool stuff with Durant, Kevin Durant and locomotion concepts when he was at Texas. And we looked at this and some of our peers in the, the Premier League and some other places like, you know, this could be a really good way to educate someone coming from a lower limb injury or any kind of injury to how to, how to kind of reconfigure, recalibrate their body in space. So the number one thing about locomotion is you do not restrict them in space. They are working with their body in space. That, so that's rule number one. When you go on, it's it. you need to, like, first off, those charts that I put out, 
I'll be the first to tell you it's ridiculous. You don't have to call something, you know, a Scipioca. You don't. <laughs> we just kind of nerd out with that. You can call it whatever you want, but basically you take any movement that the human body can do. You try to move in three planes of motion. And then once you advance, you create asymmetries and you do it for fun. So let's just start with the, you know, basic, okay, can you walk forward and backward? Okay. Can you walk forward and backward in a snake pattern? Oh, you guys are terrible snakes, you know? And then, and then he'll say, all right, how many of you can gallop forward and backward? All right. How many of you can alternate two gallops with your right two with your left forward and backward? Let's S pattern that. Now, how many of you guys can shuffle sideways? Now, how many of you can skip on your right leg and walk on your left? And while the language sounds different when I'm doing that, it's the same on the professional level. You know, a guy goes 0 for 5, um, has two errors in the field. I'm going to locomotion the heck out of him the next day to shake out all the neurological lymphatic issues because it really is just a self-calibration and kind of a play on the body to, hey, let's move around. This is, go- you know, you can talk about calibration of the foot and the ankle and the hips. There's no better way to do that than moving through space and letting the body figure those things out on its own with tension relationships. And it's a shakeout from the stress and the carryover of a lot of the other things. So, you know, that again, that's a bottom up view and top down view of how we implement locomotion. It can be in the warm up, it can be at the end of the workout. I've even incorporated locomotion between heavy strength sets to make sure that the body applies those types of things to, to movement, uh, which is our priority. If you've listened to this show for a while, then you might understand the power of observing Mother Nature uh, when it comes to working with athletes. This might be to the point where I've worked with many elite coaches who have spent time watching animals, for example, to make biomechanical inroads to working with athletes on how we can work better. You can really never go wrong with observing nature in action. I've made a similar jump in the world of nutrition, where I really now look to what nature can provide us from a supplementation standpoint. If you would have asked me about herbalism five years ago, I would have just thought about the Jinkgo biloba capsules at the local drugstore as some sort of low-grade health alternative. But these days, I've found my way into performance herbalism, featuring high-grade, immaculately sourced herbs that serve very specific functions to my health, vitality, and even my strength development. With Performance Herbalism, Lost Empire Herbs is my go-to company for all things herbs. Two times podcast guest Logan Christopher, who is also a very accomplished strongman amongst other things, is their CEO. And I use several of Lost Empire Herbs formulas and tinctures in my total nutrition regimen, and I've achieved great results. Would absolutely recommend it to anybody. If you want to check out my favorite herbs, as well as learn a lot more about them, as well as get 15% off your order, you can head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly, where you can see some of my top herbs, such as Shiliagit Resin, which was mentioned by Grant Fowler a few episodes back there. So head on over to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly for 15% off some of my favorite herbs for health and performance. All right, let's get back to the show. So that, I love that. I wish, um, you know, this is all audio only. This is one of those moments that I really wish I had like, you know, like kind of the chart, or at least some of the main charts, like, like, so maybe we can go through that a little bit. Cause you mentioned there's gallops and skips, karaoke. So essentially you're taking these raw and we were talking too about like, you know, our children and child development. That's something I, I love watching my kids just on their own, just, just doing skips and gallops, especially it's almost like that age two or three, like it's something in the kid's brain to make it asymmetrical. Like you said, and really, it's just been the last year, 
year and a half. And that's why I was so floored when I, one of the reasons I was floored when I watched your presentation on TFC is you had this huge locomotion chart. And it really, it's been this past, I would say three years, I've started to put a few of those things together. Uh, like sprint skip sprint and sprint, sprint backwards sprint and asymmetrical runs and one arm run and all the like kind of my own element and i saw yours i was like oh this is awesome like because i was thinking about how my kids move too and and like all these lights were going off so could you tell me a little bit about what are the key i mean you said skip gallop like what are those key things and then you said you make it like curvilinear like a snake and then make it sideways or could you just go into that in a little more detail yeah i think the basic movement patterns in our locomotion is going to be walk run and skip you take walk, run, and skip, and then you make sure that you move in three planes of motion with all three of these. So I even have guys do low skips and they, they circle as they move, or I make them go in the frontal plane as they're moving forward, wide, low skips, channel to narrow, low skips, and back out to wide. It really is just, it's just playing. It's, it's, it's organized playing. And with that chart, I mean, you can just get nerdy, but that chart helps keep me organized on things that I'm touching on. That's all. Anybody can do it anyway. I mean, you could write a list of 12 basic movements. But for me, one of the things that I found to be wildly effective is the karaoke pattern. And the karaoke pattern is always done sideways. Well, what I find is that people can really, going through that motion, you can play to your strengths and really compensate in ways that don't really prepare the spine to be a part of the rotation process. And so what we do with like a basic karaoke is – you're going to do the old school side karaoke, okay, for in the frontal plane. And then you're going to make you do it forward and backward. Now, a play on that could be, okay, now I want you to make big circles with your karaoke pattern. And then I want you to move to small karaoke circles at the end of your pattern and increase your speed. And this is a higher level type thing. Now, I could do that in the frontal plane side to side, but then I could do the same thing going forward and backward. If you have an athlete that can do the karaoke pattern forward and backward, Backwards is very difficult. If you can have an athlete do that and increase the circumference of their the space that they're taking up, that's a highly coordinated athlete that is going to do special things in space, period. So there's no way that if you train this, it's not going to show itself effective on the basketball court or the football field. Now you take that and you advance it to saying, okay, now I want you to only skip on your left leg, do the karaoke pattern, karaoke pattern, <laughs> forward and backward. If you have an athlete that can skip on one leg and do a karaoke pattern forward and backward while also increasing the circumference of their space that they're taking up or decreasing it, I'll show you someone that's going to do incredible things in space. I don't care what their squat max is. So that's the kind of thought process I have is teaching these athletes that open space is their playground. They need to use that as a tool and understand where they're moving and how they're moving and really, all these movements that we're doing should be like a wrench in this pocket, a drill in this pocket. And when they're out there playing, their body should subconsciously pull from things they've already done before. And I know this is nerdy, and I know some people won't agree with this, but I've seen evidence of it. I've seen evidence of it from a low level to a high level in, uh, across a multitude of different sports. It is effective. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and it's something that, again, uh, I hope to just seeing the chart and, and like just some of the videos of people doing it is really powerful just to see. And it's the simple stuff, too. But I, I love how you said uh, you use it to recalibrate. I think of it almost on the level of I always just feel so good playing a different sport that I'm used to on a low level. Like, let's just play some indoor soccer or something and two on two. And I haven't been playing in a while. It, your body just feels good because you're doing 
all the like you said it's like you move and the joints almost take care of it like in a triplanar way of course i don't know how many what i'm exactly hitting doing that you know you don't know that you're covering at all you, you might be doing maybe you're biasing lateral more than uh, a, a s pattern runs or something like that with that setup but i always kind of felt like what you're saying that kind of confirms to me in a sense like that also could be a good way of recalibrating almost just through gameplay but of course when you're a professional athlete i'm sure you can't just play other games you can't you have to be careful and selective too you can't just say hey go play um go play basketball you know pick i know you got a big game this week don't sprain your ankle right. you know you got to kind of be selective with that i just love that you have that systematized process my mind just goes like explode like not explodes but i have a harder time putting things down to chunks like that so it's very cool how you did that i know that'll help my own process when i look at that stuff too yeah and for the people listening and, and to bring perspective this is going to get i mean this get talk gets talked about a lot but this makes up maximal maximal three minutes of our entire training sessions like total so while it is a topic and it is important, I, I believe that, you know, you can be effective with, with a small dose of something and, and locomotion, 3d movement, all these things are, they're kind of like a sprinkles on a cupcake. It, it's good. It can make the cupcake good, but if you do too much of it, it can completely run it. So all these people listening out there, don't think that we're just out there doing a bunch of fairy stuff and, and they're just hoping it all works out. Yeah. <laughs> we're still adhering to principles of human performance, but this is some things we believe in. Yeah, I view it as almost too going back to if I look at I I think about everything like like Charlie Francis had this you know vertical integration in a in a maybe in a one season year you had every training ingredient in there just in different amounts and I like to think of it as like hey let's take the training ingredients back when you were a kid like four just skipping around and galloping just for fun and yeah just it's a little sprinkle later in life it's still there it's not doesn't have to be the whole training session but I, like you said three minutes it just seems that that you know I guess that's um. Is it more for younger kids or is it kind of, that's pretty routine across the board? It's routine across the board. You know, I, this is one of the things I believe in and it's going to be hard to nudge me off of this is anything that you can do with a kid that's effective is going to be effective for a professional athlete, but not everything you do with a professional athlete is going to be effective for a kid. And I truly believe that. So if there's something you believe in that's in your core curriculum for youth development, you have got to make sure that your professional athletes get some exposure to that, even if it's minimal, because at the, at their root, they're a human being. They're not, they're not a, you know, a shortstop. So you've got to sprinkle some of those things in, or you just get too far off your totem, off your base. You've got to make sure that your basic fundamentals of movement and, and who you are as a human being have got to continue to be nurtured. I like what you said too, about mixing in with heavy, like a heavier squat set or something. Cause I, I do think about, like everything has its own pro and con. And if you do too much heavy weightlifting, it's not neurologically optimal for the body, especially bilateral. So I think about, it's almost like a little reset button in between each set. I know different coaches will do different things as I guess filler. That's one of the bigger things in my last eight years is just trying to find things that are meaningful to do between sets more than just, I don't know, just do this stretch or this. Like I, I like, I like that. I think that's a is there any favorites, especially with maybe more advanced athletes? It's just, is it still pretty simple just to skip or lateral? Yeah, I think, I think some of the things overlap with our locomotion type process. But for instance, one of the things we could, like, if you just want to go to traditional strength and conditioning, if we're doing a hex bar deadlift and say we're targeting 1. You know, 1.25 meters per second in that particular lift. So you've got velocity-based training concepts along with old school strength conditioning and you're doing a sagittal plane bilateral lift. We'll superset that a lot of times with some type of different foot position pogo or leap 
to where, you know, you're not always going to be able to get out and just do locomotion for 30 yards. So if you're in a weight room, maybe you leap forward and back, angle and back, side and transverse. Or maybe we do some type of asymmetrical pattern where it's a crossover leap or some type of uh, different medial type focus uh, for the body. But really, we we kind of map those out. I don't want any strength that the body has to not be neurologically programmed to to show itself in competition. So if I'm going to take the time to do something that I feel like is more human performance based and not practical in a game, I'm always going to cross it with something that is more multidimensional so that the brain and the body understand the application of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, my, in my training program I did yesterday, and this was another thing I saw in your presentation, and I had done just a, a shade of this like a few months ago. I had this idea. And a lot of skills in sport are just are very much more asymmetrical than we give them credit for. A throw or a, a right. jump and a two-leg takeoff or, or any intuitive on-the-fly play a player makes in the game is not going to be symmetrical. And so I think a lot about uh, my realm is jumping a lot, and I think about a jump takeoff is basically – the lead leg, the last foot to hit the ground, I saw that that foot chart pattern you had has to turn inwards a little bit rather than outwards. So it has to it has to internally rotate to block a little bit, at least to block the body to go upwards. And so I was thinking a few months ago, I was like, okay, I'll jump off a two and then land on that internally rotated leg and hop backwards on a two and make a rhythm of that. And then the other guy I was training with who couldn't jump well off two feet off the run at all couldn't do that for a hill of beans. And I was like, oh, maybe I have something here. And then I saw your chart and I was like, whoa. Like, and so yesterday I took that drill you had with uh, like what you just described, like you're jumping in almost a, a matrix, like the lunge matrix, the, the clock, like you're jumping around the clock and landing on a leg and hopping back. And I was doing that between, um, like I, I was doing a series of snatches and I would usually just do a depth jump in between or something linear like we all tend to just do is let's go let's just go big every time but i did the the clock lunges and i felt awesome and the first time no sorry the clock jumps like you had like jumping and landing and i'll say too the first time i did that after watching a video of yours my calves were sore the next day man and they usually aren't and i was like whoa this is cool because if i can make my calves sore something good happened because i've done a million plyos like i've probably literally done a million jumps i'm 37 now and so I, I really like that idea of doing a multi-directional rudimentary plyo between a lift too, more than just, oh, I have to do a depth jump or I have to do something that goes all the, all out because I think that's a mentality. We always feel like we have to go all out. I agree. And I think that's awesome that, you, that you're diving into that. I mean, one of the things that I want is you, you're training muscles, but you have to tie in the tendon and ligament systems as a priority. And you've got to make sure that the, the, the speed is close. So low amplitude plyometrics are so useful because the speed – of those types of interactions in the stretch sorting cycle and the amateurization phase is more authentic to sport in low amplitude plyometrics. And so you take a lift where you're focusing on maximal recruitment, hypertrophy, you know, all these things that we know we want that we're not going to forsake, but you cross it with something to where neurologically the body is just, they love it. They're like, Oh, I can use this for this. It's, it's kind of, it's really opening up the lines of communication for the body to ha- get all the soft tissues to work in concert with each other and then neurologically teach the body almost to have better communication proprioceptively. And I know that's super nerdy, but we've just seen it to one, be a heck of a lot of fun, but two, the athletes really start to see themselves moving better. And that, at the, that is our priority. Yeah, I, I feel like with like those lunge matrices and jump matrices, you can almost see the gaps in any athlete's movements. Like, hey, I have a problem with this skill. Well, try this these series of jumps, and you can almost see what the problem is. I think in the sense, um, when I was a full time track coach on college, I had an elite level jumper, 
high jumper, but he was kind of inconsistent and coaching him, like just giving, I mean, I have my thoughts on external cues and internal, but just trying to coach him just didn't really work very well. And then I'd take him through just some very simple skip, rudimentary skip, asymmetrical gallop jump type things. And he couldn't do those at all. I mean, he was terrible at it. It's like he only had like one mode of really being able to jump and he had to go into it. And so I realized like, look, until... And I didn't get to work with him long enough to see us come to realization. And he was always playing basketball with his school, so I didn't get to actually work with him that much. But I, my realization was this guy's never going to be the best high jumper he can be until those roots of his being, like all those little skips and hops and jumps and all those little rhythms get better. Because I can only tell you so much with what you have right now. I can only do so much. You have to, we have to get better at these, these roots of it all. Yeah, I think any, anytime you have someone that is a sagittal playing dominant power person, which really all of us are, if you really tested it, usually there's a few freaks out there, but if you do any type of multi-directional patterning that is fast or, or not, I think you, if you superset that with something that you're actually monitoring and testing in the sagittal plane, it should go up because just because you're going to have better blood flow into that joint, you're going to have activation from tissues and neurological processes that probably weren't there. If you just worked in the sagittal plane, so just from a sheer recruitment standpoint and a physiology standpoint, you should test better immediately. You know, I had a great coach one time tell me that they get better 40 times if they test agility first. And this is at the college level. And it, it was um, Coach Roof at um, Baylor. And he basically said, look, if you, if you did a pro agility test before you test 40, they're going to test better. And I thought, of course they would. That's so brilliant that, that you guys actually put that to task. And I, and I actually think that would work for, for jumpers. And I don't work with jumpers on a high level like your, yourself or others, but we've seen that work with our NFL combine testing and some of those things. It just neurologically and physiologically, it works. That makes perfect sense. Because, yeah, in the world of jumping, I, I, mean, I say this all the time, is a game of a pickup game of basketball is the ultimate warm up if you're just going to run in a straight line basically and jump as high as you can. You can't get that. You cannot get as warmed up doing just a linear, all right, we're going to do all these 20 yard drills like skips and jumps and hops and you have to have uh, even my own personal best jump I ever did in high school where I got uh, my fingers like two or three inches above the top of that square so touching 11 seven at six feet tall was after doing tons of just like wind sprints and suicide sprints on the court just like and blasting them my coach was making me race the point card and I couldn't have done a linear warm-up and done that and so I'm I'm continually it's it really is like this is woven into this whole conversation is that it's like how many pieces of that jump matrix even ha- happen in a change, a simple change of direction, probably a lot of them. You probably check in a lot of boxes every time you change direction and go the other way. Right. And on certain levels, you're working on tissue resiliency, density, like that's your long-term play, right? Is can I build a, a machine, an animal, a human being that one can handle these types of different force vectors Two can perform at a better level. Three is comfortable here four understands how to use their body in space, you know, with these movements. And all those are, you know, quite honestly, individual types of markers from this, but you're going to get immediate neurological benefit. But the other things come too. I mean, you look at a high jumper's Achilles on the left side versus the right, it's different. Now, if you train an athlete with low amplitude plyometrics and high amplitude plyometrics and strength in eight dimensions, you're going to have some resiliency built in. You're going to have some underlying adaptations physically over time. They're going to be unique and should lend themselves to execution on on the field of play. 
I like what you said with the S runs portion of it too. Like do it in an S. I know some coaches I'm talking to, they'll do like, if you're doing like bounding, let's do bounding on an S or let's sprint on an S and using that as a warm up as well. And that's like, if it's, that's kind of like subtle too. It's not like a huge change, but it's enough to start to engage some more robustness and some more fullness of working the joint versus just let's do the linear warm up. But I, I, I heard of the agility, just that, that anecdote with the agility before. I, I like that. Yeah. And then some coaches are listening saying, well, that's easy for you to say, I've got 10 feet, you know, that's all I got to work with. And we've got 20 athletes in here. Well, look, you can do, you can do reps where your athlete's heads turned all the way to the right, turned all the way to the left. You're going to get some of those training effects. You can do reps where their feet are turned in, feet are turned out. You're going to get some of those cur- curvilinear type effects from that. Even if you don't have the room to, to run in an S pattern or even a, a semicircle or any type of curvilinear, you can still get training effects by doing certain things. Just in the world of bilateral lifts, I was playing around with this this summer, squatting, like, let's do five reps with your feet turned in, five reps with your feet turned out. Like, do you do anything with your lifts that outside the lunges and jumps and anything like that? Yeah, I think, I think ultimately most athletes are going to be able to lift the most in a bilateral position that's comfortable for their anatomy, right? So most of the time their physiology is going to dictate their best technique to lift maximal weight in a bilateral position. Some people toe slightly pointed out, whatever. And, you know, people can take it to task and be like, well, you got to fix this to get this or whatever. I think at a certain point, it's like the lighthouse in the ocean. You just kind of got to go around it. So um, what, what I guess I'm saying is with this situation with squat, I do believe in maximally loading the body. I think there is benefit to that at times, but yes, we will do wide squat we do what we call pencil squat where the feet and knees are all the way together and it's on a front rack position. I will do toes out squat. I, you know, when you start turning your, your feet in and loading in those types of, uh, in that type of pace, I, I don't know. I think for a lot of people, feet straight is turned in. So yeah. I think that turning your feet in and doing heavy, heavy loads might not be a good idea. So we stay away from that, but you know, a split stance is the same as a single leg. So, you know, all this research on unilateral training, I think it's fantastic. We do visit that and prioritize it. But if you're looking at our general approach, you know, we're usually going to do heavy squat once every 14 days. And I could do that with a unilateral load or a bilateral load. Um, we look at things in, in, in the concept of two rolling weeks, sometimes 30 days. I don't feel the need to squat twice a week. So sometimes I'm going to warm them up in six different squat patterns with no weight. Sometimes they know we're going to do plyometrics and then it's a heavy deadlift day or a heavy squat day. So uh, I know we're getting dipping our toe into programming concepts, but that's kind of our approach to, to squat and bilateral and unilateral and all those things. Yeah, I know something I found really in the last two years of college programming was pre- I could say pretty definitively by the time I left that taking if I was normally going to squat bilaterally twice a week, replacing one of those days with some sort of unilateral always worked better. It just... It just was always just that even strength, even strength was better. I think maybe just less load on the athlete at total and just seemed to have a good outcome. I was going to say too, with the turning it in, the toes in, I, it worked okay for me because I'm already internally rotated. Like you said, some athletes, yeah. if you're already internally rotated, cool. Like it's probably going to be somewhat natural, but I found out right away. I, I just had another coach at the gym. It's like, oh, Hey, I like, I just did this myself. This felt interesting as a warm up. you know, like you try it. And he was he is not internally rotated. And for him to go, it was just awkward. And so that's about as far as that got on that level. But I have been playing around with the idea of different stances to warm up. So I was curious what you would say to that. And I, I agree. I, I think most athletes, 
a lot of athletes are not going to do very good um, with the toes pointed in. You're going to hit some weird muscles and put a lot of pressure on some ligaments and not probably not a great way doing that. I think in a warm up it's good. And I, I think adding drivers to that where, where you're driving things in different planes of motion in with your feet internally rotated is fine. And it, but from a unilateral standpoint, it's way easier to tweak the foot position. It's way more comfortable. The body can adapt. And I think you can handle loads better in that situation. Yeah. Speaking of warm up, I saw in your presentation, you had just like body weight squats, no way you were doing squats all sort of like almost like, you know, yoga and get up and feet together and get up. And you, you do a lot and unloaded, don't you with your guys? Yeah. I mean, I think every day is an educational process on, you know, how, what do you have to work with today? What do we need to fix? So I look at the warm up as a kind of a testing, you know, it's an evaluation constantly. Okay. This is how they're moving in this foot position today, this foot position, this foot position. They're, they're comfortable in the frontal plane with their ankles today. They're not, or I'm getting calcaneal glide or I'm not, um, you know, once I see what I have to work with, it can change what I had planned for that day. So, while you could say, well, that, oh, that's a great way to warm up the body for me. Yeah, I think that's probably true. But really, it's me having my eyes on an athlete figuring out what what am I working with today? Yeah, I, I like that. I, and making that the screen more than just, I guess, just kind of a canned screen pattern. You just put them in different motions and movements and see where they're at. Makes sense. Yeah, all those screens are brilliant. I mean, I'll be the first to say that all those things that have, have come out of our profession in the last 20 years are brilliant. But it's it's one it's, it's static and it's one day. So we're coaches. We, you know what separates the great coaches is I think their eyes, their ability to see things, and their communication skills, and their ability to get people to act right. So if you got if you just want to rely on this screen from six weeks ago and they're laying on their back and you got oh this is asymmetrical, let's fix this. I think we're kind of <laughs> we're losing the forest for the trees or whatever you want to say. I mean it's just trees for the forest. I don't know. It just seems to me like that evaluation never stops. That's the value of a coach. And we, we've got to do better about understanding that you don't have to say this thing is no good because of that, but you need to understand that your job's not done with this paper profile you have from an eval. We've got to, we've got a coach. You can't just look at numbers and say, this is what we do. They're an organism. They're not a, they're not a machine. Like they're going to change. They change every day. You know, we don't know if their wife's stressing them out or if they don't like what's going on with this other guy they have to work with. We, we don't know. That can change range of motion in a joint, period. So we've got to evaluate every single day. Yeah, last um, kind of chat or question on kind of this multidirectional thing is that the lunge matrix, I think a lot of people are familiar with clock lunges and lunge matrixes. Could you explain a little, about, a little bit about that? And I'm sure the, does the foot position change there or could you explain how you work lunges in a multi-linear um, pattern with different foot positions? Yeah, so the origin of the, the lunge matrix came from Gary Gray's thought process. And here, here's the deal. A lot of people, you know, there's people that are all in on Gary and people that are not. Here's the thing. You can learn from anybody. The thing Gary did is he put it out there and then people were like, well, how do you use this? He's like, well, I don't know. So for us, just taking these concepts and thinking like, what really makes sense? How can we use this? And with the lunge matrix, it's as simple as, for us, it started on a therapy standpoint. We get a lot of referrals from people that are post-ACL post Achilles, post whatever. It's usually our, not usually, a lot of times it's our first interaction with an individual. They've already been hurt. They come to us. We're to bridge them from the traditional PT to game. We just found that it was just incredibly useful to get them more comfortable just to be able to move. You can do all the table work you want and I'm doing this grasping, this stretching and, oh, look, my hamstring quad ratio is good. Well, oh, that's fantastic. 
you can't even lunge in the transverse plane. Like, so what, this isn't effective. So just having to be put to the task on being, you know, focused on results on the field post-operation and, you know, different things like that, that's where we started using it the most. Then we just decided this is great for everybody and we're going to start implementing this. Now, I think where a lot of people go wrong is they're like, oh, we're going to do lunge matrix and we're never going to squat. And I think that that is the wrong way. And I think that's what bastardized this entire movement in the first place is, one, Gary didn't really come out and say how to use it. Two, people that did use it turned into super functional man, and it just their people, their athletes started getting shredded. So I don't like to just go all the way dogmatic into one paradigm or, or this or the other. We just is like this is how we're going to use it, and it's been effective for us. Yeah, that's so, and that's um, that's interesting to me too. And people, it's almost like there's the inventor, and then there's the users of the invention. And a lot of times, it's the users of the invention that can take it in all sorts of different directions. And so, I think it's interesting. I didn't, I'm not too familiar with the the source of that. I've just, I've actually even just heard the name Gary Gray, but I'm not even that familiar with his his work. So, your work has been a good intro for me to that. So, I'm that's interesting how you've used that. And I, so, I'm curious too because like you talk about being super fun or coaches are super functional and so i know you have some training in therapy could you explain uh, your your training and background in therapy and then how that has made you a better coach and how that works its way into your programs yeah i mean i think first i'd like to say i'm not a therapist but when i got recruited to start apec in east texas by some physical therapists and their idea was to you know put this put an athletic performance element to it and that was 16 years ago and when I got recruited there, we didn't have a facility. I just worked in the PT clinic. So I literally had the hallways of the PT clinic before and after they were open. But then during the day, basically if they ran into roadblocks, they're like, I don't know what to do with this person. Why don't you fool with them? And so I became this guy that just got reject clients and patients that weren't getting results. And you know, what's the risk there? I mean, they already are walking with a cane. Like, you know, they said it didn't work. So I mean, I tried things and I tried to play on, you know, research things I'd seen, call people, whatever. But it was it was a really cool interactive space for me to be able to be given all the things that didn't work with traditional therapy and try my hand at helping those patients and clients. And that's where we really started. Now, eventually, after a few years, we got our own facility and did things. And that's a story for a different time. But eight years later, I just found myself dealing with the same problems over and over again, hamstrings, hip flexors, low back, whatever. And traditional PT wasn't helping me as a partner. So I, I went and did a fellowship uh, in therapy with Gary and some of those guys and, and Todd Wright and some of the people that have been part of that thought process. And there, look, there's a lot of different philosophies within that. So I, I'll be the first to tell you, like, I'm not, everybody that comes out of that views that, differently, but it was really effective for me to open up my mind to the concepts of not being in silos, but actually bleeding therapy concepts into training, but without too much volume. You can't just, you just do therapy with people, they're going to get shredded. And if you just do, you know, traditional performance training with strength conditioning charts, your people won't be as good at sport as they are at training. So there's, there's gotta be a way to mesh it. And that's where a lot of our thought process comes from is, how do we bleed these things without stepping on the toes of an actual therapist in acute situations? But how can we make sure that our athletes training is actually transferring to the field and they're more resilient? And that's kind of full circle how therapy has been a part of our journey to this point. And I would imagine that's 
a large portion of where like the locomotion complex ideas, the lunges and multi-directional jumps, or, or could you explain, I guess, what of those has been as a result of your kind of therapy background and, or if there's anything else from your therapeutic background you think is important that has worked its way into your program that your athletes will often see? Yeah, I think, I think just low amplitude plyometrics and as many planes of motion as possible and then as many dimensions as possible and then making sure that, that they understand, okay, here, here's some things we're going to do to see how time affects you. Here's some things we're going to do to see how space affects you. Now, let's see how much a variation of movement you can create on your own in this particular situation. So understanding just the depths of back to performance, not back to, you know, not, not being released, but getting an athlete back to the performance or actually elevating them. It's a lot different than, than just traditional PT of hamstring quad ratio. So those things, it's once you, once you go there and you see the results of that, it's hard to kind of go back and not implement that for every athlete that you have. And so while, while some of the initial concepts would gain influence on, we kind of took that like we do with a lot of things and, just applied some creativity and thought behind it. And you know, I'm not scared to try things that other people haven't done before. I don't need for somebody at Alabama to do something for me to feel like I should try it. You know, that's just not something we do. And maybe that's wrong or right. I don't know, but it's been what we feel is best is I don't need someone to lead in some type of thought process for me to create something from what I'm seeing and not to be disrespectful to, to people that are legends and, and have done so many good things, but you know, I don't think when Charlie Francis died, he, he, he was done. Like, I think we can take some of those concepts and, and improve upon them. And I think he would have if he was still here. And that's just one example is I don't mind having ideas and taking a run on something. And I don't want to be reckless, but, you know, we're not, we're not locked in a box. And I don't have to be dogmatic in, in the private sector. So we're, we're just not. Yeah, this is still a really young field in the grand scheme of things. I think if we took other fields back and had a big old timeline, it's like, I mean, granted, the ancient Greeks and all that, they were doing, you know, they were, they were training for sure. But in terms of, I think, the literature on it, it's, we're such a young and, and probably still almost defining who we are as a field, too. I think there's different terms for a strength coach, athletic performance. I, I, I've, I've heard that in a recent conversation I was hearing, like, a lot of times people will only do something in their program if a team won and they did it. Like, this, fo- hey, this football team won. They were doing that. Okay, now we can do this. You know, we, couldn't, we couldn't do it before, so now we can't. Uh, yeah, I think in general, our, our profession doesn't even know the difference between causation and correlation. And more importantly, the people that are typically our bosses don't understand that. And we've got to be better about, you know, we got to quit being like, oh, we never take credit. Oh, we never. And I'm not about taking credit. I'm just saying we got to quit acting like we're not important to the process. I mean, you can't you can't be overly humble and then be be upset that they're not giving credit or value in the position. You know, we've, we've got to say that it matters. You know, and I think that's part of our problem. Bobby, you mentioned um, with the therapy, you mentioned time and space. Uh, so could you explain a little bit about how that works its way in? I, I mean, is that in, is the multidirectional plyometrics, for example, jumping off two and landing in one, like around the clock in different foot positions? Are you putting a timer on that sometimes? Or how is that working its way into some of these uh, concepts you're doing? Yeah, on a high level, like with Patrick, for instance, I'll say, okay, I want you to do two to one patterns. Here's your options. I'm going to give you five seconds and your goal is to have 10 contacts. And then I let him create a play on that so that there is minimal restrictions from my side. I'm basically creating an environment and he's got to go solve the problem. So it could be the same way. For instance, if I take a heavy row and I'm having a guy do 95% on a set of two, and then I, I, I superset that with him on bands and I say, all right, I need 10 reps in three seconds. Boom, boom, boom. So now 
it's the same thing. I don't want to overcomplicate it. It's the same thing. You take a, a jump to a hop or, or a one to two leg touch or a two to one leg touch and say, here's your options. You can go forward, angle, backwards, or cross. I want as many touches as you can in eight seconds. That's a way to manipulate time. And a, a way to manipulate space would be, okay, you have to get outside of this radius with all your contacts. I want three contacts. Now they've got a leap and they understand that now they're going for amplitude. So it's not as complicated as it sounds. It's not this cryptic secret way. It's just literally thinking of concepts and seeing how your athletes solve the problem. Yeah, I, I like that. I like, um, you You mentioned VBT before, and I, I love bar speed velocity training, but I think that it's almost like our industry has gotten so far into that that they forgot about the stopwatch. And <laughs> just like, or, or even... In the, one of the books I like, it was written probably like 90, 1990, 91 by Tadeusz Starzynski. And it was just like, hey, just do squats and see how fast you can do five squats. Or you know, It's like, how is that any worse or if not better than VBT? Because you actually have to reverse it at the bottom and there's all sorts of different things. So I like that you mentioned that with time. And I'm always trying to think of different, like I think that puts such a, especially with the jump training, because I mean, jump training is almost always just amplitude related. How high did you jump? Well, the highest jumper isn't going to be the best athlete in sport. I mean, it, it's impressive, but it's, it's the quickness of it and the timing and the optionality, right? Like, I, I think that the, the put a timer on the jump training is is next level. I think our industry needs more of that. Yeah, think about it. So, is the highest vertical jumper in the NBA the top rebounder? Absolutely not. And that's why I laugh at the, the NFL combine is kind of a joke. So, <laughs> vertical jump is not a good marker, Okay what they should do is, is see how fast people get to their peak height in the jump. That's going to be the guy that's going to show you power coming off the blind or power and initiating, you know, whatever reaction from their mental processes. And, you know, Dennis Rodman wasn't the highest jumper. Yes, he could jump, but he could angulate and he could get off the ground faster than you. And he could do it three times in a row. Well, how do you, how do you, how do you learn from that as a coach in performance and, and try to nurture those things or try to develop those things? Well, you know, I think, I think you've got to start with concepts. If you look at technology, I think it can really, really hinder us. And I'm not against technology. I love all the VBT technology, but I don't have time to, to do that with all my athletes in group settings. And it can disrupt the culture and the logistics and the energy for my training sessions. So, look, here's the way I look at technology. Does it elicit an action from my athletes that's more than I can produce without that technology? Okay. If not, not interested. I, look, this is going to sound crazy. I don't care about the validity of technology. Okay. I wear a whoop band is, you know, I love aura ring too. Okay. I don't wear one of those. Why? Cause I, you know, I don't like a big ring on my finger. Is that silly? You may think so. I don't, you know why I like whoop because the athletes look at the score and they get competitive about it. Do I think HRV on the whoop is valid? I don't care because here's what I know. My athletes are competitive about it and it's changing the way they behave. If it's changing the way they behave, I'm all in. I'm all in. So I look at the same way with VBT. You want to measure it? You want to put charts up? You want to have it on this TV screens? Fantastic. You know, is it more than I can tell a kid do, you know, you're doing four squats in three seconds. I don't know. Maybe for you may not be for me. So that's how I measure technology and integrate technology. 
Yeah, I think that's a great marker. I especially with the, the all the Tendo stuff and I know when the different squat brackets were coming out, it's this zone and that zone. I was just like, I don't know, I'm just gonna use it when I want athletes to push hard on their, you know, the squat day, when they want it to be more of a power, when I want them to get competitive. I, I always felt like trying to dig too far down the rabbit hole. If it didn't elicit, like you said, more of a drive, then you kinda wanna reduce to the fewest factors to just training. You know what I'm saying? Like I I would agree with you with that. Um um, with that metric i was just talking with um the podcast that we just went out today actually with rob assis was talking he has like a, a con very fancy piece like a contact grid that can tell you like all these bounding and sprinting metrics and he likes it because it makes his athletes really competitive with just correlating their bounding to their actual triple jump performance hey we can get a correlation here but yeah beyond that like once you get into the minutiae man i i totally agree with you now, don't get me wrong. I'll take all of it. I love all of it. I think it's moving our field forward. It's just not always the best thing for certain coaches. And for instance, your coach that you're referencing right now, that's going to help him coach his athletes. Mm-hmm. He should do it. Not everybody has to have that. Not everybody needs that. Not everybody does well with that information as a coach. Some coaches do better when they don't have those information. that information. You look at hitting coaches, pitching coaches, some of them can't use the data very well. They're just not good at it. That doesn't mean they're not a good coach. Some people go strictly off the data and they're widely effective in the way they implement it and communicate it. We've got to make decisions and quit labeling things as bad or good. Look, people, philosophies, coaching techniques, all of these programming, it's like treasure. Sometimes it's value to us. Sometimes it's not. And it doesn't need to be judged just because it doesn't have a value to a specific person. It could work really well for someone else. Yeah, I agree. Especially looking at like, just psychology in general there's tons of different assessments but even like a myers-briggs are you thinking sensing feeling judging like all these some people are just more wired to want that quantitative in their their head and versus others might not be i like what you said too it doesn't make you a bad coach if you just aren't great at using it you probably have other strengths and other ways of ideally communicating and achieving the same thing it just it's just yeah i i I like that you i like the way that you describe that basically and, and, I'll, and honestly, a little more specific on technology. I mean, we use pocket radars. I'll do miles per hour on sprints, on med ball throws. We do wattage competitions with Kaiser squats. And we've got a WWE wrestling belt. And if you get the highest score, you get to wear the belt the rest of the workout. I mean, we have fun and we do put metrics on things. And we do monitor things with technology. So I don't want to come across as being this person that's against it. But I just think there's a point where you got to decide what works for you and your culture. And then, you, and then do it. Yeah, like ideally, it's like find the number that motivates the athletes, and then use those numbers as to reinforce the work. I love that belt idea, by the way the the wrestling belt. I love that with the Kaiser. That was that's one of my favorite pieces of equipment too. You know, I guess technology it's it is, but it's uh that's uh that's really I always felt like that was actually one of the purest uh, one of the purest numbers, even more than a squat BBT or a clean number. I always felt that Kaiser was like a really pure and fun, easy way to to get that output. And I like the belt idea behind it. It's super easy. I mean, Kaiser, it's super easy. You get a wattage number. You can, you can regulate percentages on squat or you can just say, okay, everybody today's doing 250. Who's, who's the guy you get one shot, you know, and they love it. They love it. You have fun, you get energy. And now you've got a competition that's safe. Right. And, and then they put on, you know, the belt. (laughs) So um, it's a lot of fun. 
Oh, that's awesome. Um, just another, just a quick last question here for you. And one, actually, I'll ask a clarification because I'm just curious. And I'll try to, if you have videos, I know you occasionally post like Patrick's training and I'll, I'll try to find the relevant ones and throw them in the show notes here, like the hop, the hop matrix and, and, and all those t- types of things. But like when you say you get three directions on this and go as many as you can in like eight seconds, are you saying like you could jump forward? Uh, you can jump forward like back to seven o'clock and back like you just give him three directions and he gets to pick the how does that shake out when in uh, practicality typically there's a base right and that's your zero so that could be center whether you're on one leg or two legs that's what you have to return to between every contact now if i want him to hit like we do what we call fast movements well fast movements is is, is not what you think it's forward angle side transverse so if i say okay you have fast as an option he knows he can do that in, in, with, with on either side, with his right leg or his left. So that basically means we're working lateral type of processes, not medial type of processes. So if you can follow me, what I'm saying is, is if he's on two legs, I'll let him go forward angle, side or transverse, two to one right or two to one left. I don't care what he does, he chooses. Now he's going for speed here. So he might go two to one right, two to one left, two to one angle, two to one angle, or he may just do all of them on the right. If he does that, I'll follow up the next set and force him on the other side. So I'm going to get what I want, but I want to see what he wants to do. I'm going to let him have some controlled choice of it. Oh, I love that. Actually, I'll forego the last question just to expand on this, but how, like giving athletes autonomy, I think you know, the more I've studied great coaches, it seems like that, that I mean, in, in my own transformation in the last 10 years, I, my giving of autonomy has really increased to athletes. So how do you navigate that through like a young athlete to a more experienced, like a Patrick, how much autonomy are you giving those athletes in the training situation? Yeah, we'll go top down. I think the higher the level athlete, the more autonomy you want to give them. Like that wouldn't work with my kindergarten through second grade. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm going to say, we're going to say literally, all right, how many of you can stand on one leg and jump to this dot? I mean, that's, you know, that's some, and then maybe if we don't want an advancement to the dot would be, you know, this direction or towards that color sign. But when you get to that level, you really want to encourage athletes to feel like they're always in control. And so when I'm with the high, the highest of high level athletes, all my things are going to come in the form of questions and options. Now, all those questions and options are to give me a thought process that I'm on. So there's a little bit of control there. It's not so obvious, but at a high level, you really want them to always feel like they're in control. And that's my philosophy I'm sure with some people at the professional level, you can't do that with. I know I've had some people you can't do that with. But the majority of the people that are truly at the the peak of their game, the top performers in the world, I feel like that is the best way to go with them. But even within professional sport, there's knuckleheads you can't do that with. Yeah, there's some people, if you give them too much autonomy, they're just going to... Actually, it's funny, speaking of... That makes me think of Dennis Rodman in the the Last Dance series, and he'd just go off and it's like, hey, when's Dennis going to come back? I mean, Phil <laughs> Phil Jackson was the man. I mean, I mean that's a whole other podcast, but... That was uh, that was interesting watching. I was like, man, when is Dennis going to come back? I had forgotten about that back in the day, but I, uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, there's that. It's never one thing, but I, I definitely agree, and I'm, I'm getting used to that art of how much autonomy do I give athletes as they progress and, and master skills. So, it's good to hear your answer on that, and, and to just see that well rounded in different situations. And that's the art of coaching, right? That's the thing that we can all argue about programming, we can all argue about technology, but at the end of the day. That's the art of coaching right there is, hey, how do you maximize someone individually? And at some point, you can't try to make them the way you want them to be. You've got to find a way to maximize them because that's the guy you're working with. And that's where great coaches overcome their personalities, 
They overcome what they're what they think they're good at or what they think they need. And that's what Phil Jackson was a master at. And in my opinion, when he moved into management, because he did not have the relationships with the players, he was less able to do that. And that's why he was less effective. But you got to honor Phil Jackson and and know just how great of a coach he was. And we can learn from that, especially with Dennis, right? I mean, yeah. this guy let him go to Vegas in the, in the game week, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in, the, in the finals, and somehow salvage that to win. I mean, ultimate respect. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked with another coach. I, I love reading the yeah, 11 rings and watching that series, man. I got to do, I got to get through that again, too, at some point. It's just that guy's a legend. So, man, there's a couple other questions I would like to ask you, Bobby, but I, I this four year old party upstairs is starting to get intense. And I'm afraid it's going to start, if, if I don't keep my volume down, it's going to start to get on the show. So we'll have to save them for another day. Uh, I know we've been going a while already, but I, thank you so much, man. It is awesome talking to you. And I, I love your outside-the-box thinking. It gives me so many ideas that to fuel my process, and I'm sure it'll be awesome for the listeners as well. It's an honor to be on. I learned a lot from this podcast and all the professionals out there listening. If you're listening to podcasts, you're doing it right. Uh, we always want to challenge our thought process and I look forward to anybody that heard this and, and has some different ideas, man. I would, I would love to be challenged and, and hear from you and keep connecting and, and raising all tides together. That wraps up another show. We'll see you guys next week. Have a good one.